Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Isn't there a single one worthy of you in all that vast flock? Let her be lovely, gracious, rich and fertile. Let her ancestors' faces round her porticos be more virginal than the Sabine women with tangled hair who ended war with Rome. A rare bird on this earth, in the very likeness of a black swan. Who could stand a wife who embodied all of that? I'd rather, much rather, have Vanustina than you, Cornelia, O mother of the Gracchi, if that proud expression has to accompany your weighty virtues, if triumphs are part of your dowry. Spare us your father's defeat of Hannibal, please. Or Syphax, beaten in camp, vanish now with all of Scipio's Carthage. Mercy, Apollo, we pray, and you, goddess, drop your arrows. Her lads are innocent. Niobe, the mother's the one to shoot. Though Amphibian may shout that Apollo still draws his bow. That's how Niobe did for her flock of sons, and the father too by thinking herself nobler than Latona's divine children while proving more fertile than the white sow of Alba Longa. What's it worth, all the grace, the beauty, if you're ever more in her debt? There's no pleasure in all those rare and exalted virtues if the woman, spoilt by pride, comes dripping with bitter aloes, not honey. Who, however devoted, doesn't loathe the wife he lavishes so much praise on? who's so devoted he can't hate her too for seven hours or so out of every twelve. Who can stand the perfect wife from the 16 satires by Juvenal, 2nd century CE. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.3, Sevilla, Lover of Caesar. In the first season of The Other Half, I covered the empresses of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the first first ladies of Rome. From Livia Drusilla to Statilia Messalina, they helped set the stage for centuries of imperial rule. What was once a republic that loathed the very notion of monarchy was now a fully-fledged royal empire 
ruled from the centre by an emperor. The story of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic has filled libraries and theatres for centuries. Its actors are household names, from Cicero and Cato to Brutus and Cassius to Pompey the Great and Octavian. These characters oscillated from allies to enemies and were vastly different in many ways. But one thing unites them. They are all men. Almost all. For there is one woman at the centre of the action. The lover of a tyrant, the mother of his killer, and the tireless defender of her family's honour. That woman is Servilia. If you've heard of Servilia before, it's likely from the BBC and HBO series Rome, where she is portrayed in show-stealing fashion by Lindsay Duncan. As with Aspasia, history remembers Servilia primarily through her sexuality and lust for power. Historians, especially the ancient ones, have always been keen on dramatic irony, on linking the stories of their characters with the wider story of a civilization. This is particularly true with the fall of the Roman Republic. For them, the Republic's descent into tyranny was due to moral decay. The power games of oversex and power-hungry women corrupted society and left it ripe for the likes of Caesar, Antony and Octavian. But as we see, the TV character and the writer's caricature bear little relation to the historical Servilia. Before we find out more, though, I'd like to thank all of my amazing Patreon supporters who keep the show going. They chose the topic for this season with their votes, and I am so grateful for their wisdom and generosity. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find bonus images and content. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Sevilla was born into a city that dominated an entire continent. Between the 6th century BCE and the turn of the 1st century BCE, Rome had been transformed from being just another minor city-state in the Italian peninsula to a major regional player in the Mediterranean, and then finally, following the conquests of Greece and Carthage, to being the dominant power in all of Europe. Through a combination of conquest, client kingdoms and alliances, the hegemony of the Roman Republic stretched from the Atlantic coast of Iberia to the coast of the Black Sea and Judea in the east. For almost all of this time, Rome had been at war. It was the Republic's default state, and its citizens took great pride in the Imperium Romanum, the Roman Empire, one defended and expanded by the will of the gods and the blood of its people. Originally a monarchy, 
Rome had been a republic since around 509 BCE, ruled by an upper class of citizens who sat in the Roman Senate. To rise to the top of the Roman Republic, you had to be a man from the upper class and then follow a prescribed journey through the military and then up a greasy pole of civilian governmental jobs such as questorships, aedileships and praetorships until, if you were successful, influential and wealthy enough, you reached the rank of consul. Every year the Roman Senate elected two men to the rank of consul. They ran the civilian government and were the commanders-in-chief of the army for a full year, after which the honour passed on to another two men, and so on. This journey to the top was known as the Cursus Honorum, and ensured the stability of the Republic. Everyone got their turn, and no one got too big for their boots. Yes, it was more complicated than that, but this is not a place for a deep dive into Roman Republican politics. The Roman Republic didn't have a codified constitution as such. Much like the modern United Kingdom, it was run by an unwritten constitution comprising of a combination of laws, customs and principles everyone just accepted as fact. That is, until certain senators began to get too big and too rich for this constitution to hold. But we'll get back to that. There was no role for women in Roman political life. The male head of the family, the paterfamilias, ruled like a tyrant over all of his relations. He owned all the property, decided whom his sons and daughters married, or were allowed to divorce. Roman marriage was a much less permanent institution than it would become in the Middle Ages and in later years. Divorce was fairly common and not all that stigmatised. Women generally, married as soon as they came of age, around puberty, usually to a wealthy, older man. Once he died, she would remarry, and so on. It was not unusual for some women to have many husbands through their lives, and to become independently wealthy and hold a degree of independence thanks to all that inheritance. Roman women were held to a different standard to the men. According to the writer and statesman Seneca the Younger, quote, The consulship sheds lustre upon men. Eloquence gives eternal renown. Military glory and a triumph immortalise an obscure family. Many other spheres ennobled by splendid ability. The virtue of a woman is, in a special sense, purity. It was that that made Lucrezia the equal of Brutus, if it did not make her his superior, since Brutus learned from a woman the impossibility of being a slave. It was this that made Cornelia a fit match for Gracchus, and Portia for a second Brutus. This purity, or pudicitia, encompasses many things. It means chastity before marriage, but also loyalty to her family and husband, and her personal bravery to defend her own honour, even with her life if necessary. And what better place to defend one's virtue than in the home? where you could be safe from wagging tongues and tempting potential transgressions. For those that strayed from the path, there could be severe consequences. A shameful female relative tarnished not only her reputation, but the good name of the entire family. The punishment for even a hint of scandal was divorce and potential penury. Men had few such impediments to their wandering eyes. This brings us now to the subject of today's episode. 
Sevilla came from an illustrious family, at least on her father's side. Quintus Sevilius Capio could trace his family line back to the mother of Romulus, the city's founder, and members of the family pepper the history of Rome. He was about as blue-blooded as you can get. Her mother, on the other hand, Livia, was of minor nobility. Her family could claim a few consulships and some other high-achieving ancestors, but they did not have the name recognition or luster of her husband's family. However, the Capio family name was not in the greatest shape. Servilius' grandfather, helpfully also called Quintus Servilius Capio, had served as consul in 106 BCE and led a huge Roman army into Gaul alongside his consular colleague. The two had spectacularly fallen out, and the entire army of over 100,000 men was routed and destroyed at the Battle of Ararusio. He was exiled as a traitor and his property confiscated, leaving his son in a very tricky position. This is likely why he had married below his station. He needed the money. Servilia was the eldest child of the marriage, born in around 100 BCE, and was joined shortly afterwards by a younger brother, another Quintus Servilius Capio, a couple of years later. Shortly after this, her parents divorced, with Servilia's mother marrying Marcus Porcius Cato, the son of Cato the Elder. Together they would have two further children, including Cato the Younger, a man who, as we'll see, would prove a thorn in the side of Servilia's future paramour. In the late 90s BCE, Servilia's parents and stepfather all died, meaning that by the age of nine, she was being raised in the household of her maternal uncle, Marcus Livius Drusus. He was extremely wealthy and a committed social reformer. He was elected tribune of the plebs, a powerful role that had the power to overrule the decisions of consuls, and attempted to pass a law giving Roman citizenship to Rome's Italian allies. This was vehemently and violently opposed by his conservative opponents, and led to his assassination in 91 BCE. So, at a tender age, Servilia had been orphaned and seen two foster parents come and go, the second one rather violently. As the eldest of a cluster of siblings and half-siblings, it's likely that Servilia would have taken on the role of a kind of surrogate mother, as she represented a rock in this churning sea. The children were brought up by a cabal of aunts, uncles and grandparents, with the boys and girls receiving very different educations. She would have been able to read, write and speak in Latin and Greek, and was well acquainted with all the classical texts, and would have been taught to dance, weave and play the lyre. You may notice my use of the conditional tense there, and that's because we don't have any specific information about her childhood, We're just assuming she must have received something typical of her time and rank. While her brothers were raised to become future soldiers and senators, she went with her aunts into society and was taught how to run a household. This was no menial task. Running an aristocratic Roman household was a complex and demanding job. She would manage a considerable amount of money, people and property when she grew up. And she wouldn't have long to wait. Traditionally, Roman aristocratic marriages were planned out years in advance, but the political situation in Servilia's preteen years was so tumultuous and febrile, not to mention her legal guardians dropping like flies, that it's unlikely this was the case for her. 
So what did the ideal Roman wife look like? Well, she had to be beautiful, charming, wealthy, and of unimpeachable moral virtue. She had to come from a good family, ideally one that could date its ancestry back to the Roman Republic's early years, and one that had achieved recent glories on the battlefield and in the Senate. Sevilla ticked most of these boxes, so finding her a match shouldn't be hard. Since her father's death, she had become legally emancipated and was independently wealthy with money and property that would remain hers even after marriage. She probably would have had a say in who her first husband would be, though with the heavy guiding hand of her relatives. We don't know exactly when the marriage took place, but it's likely to have been around the start of 85 BCE, with the lucky man being Marcus Junius Brutus. He was about 15 years or so older than her, a fairly typical age gap, and came from a similarly famed line to Sevilla. His most famous ancestor was one Lucius Junius Brutus, who had led the uprising that overthrew the last Roman king and established the Roman Republic. Well, probably. The exact ascent was disputed, and there were some at the time, and since, that have claimed that he had a less illustrious line. He was an appropriate match for Sevilla, but not an especially inspiring. This was the product of circumstance. Now, I'm going to do my best not to confuse you all with the cavalcade of chaos and nonsense that was the politics of Rome in the last century or so of the Republic. For this period, I would strongly recommend you read my podcasting hero Mike Duncan's superb book, The Storm Before the Storm. But to summarise it in a sentence, the Republic was embroiled in a bitter civil war at this time between the supporters of Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Choosing the wrong side could seriously damage your wealth and your health. It was a dangerous and cutthroat time, and Servilia had already seen what had happened to her stepfather when he had gone against the political grain. Brutus, it seems, at the time, was a safe choice. And the two didn't waste time in having their first child, who was born within a year of their marriage. Following the standard unimaginative Roman naming custom, they named the son after his father, Marcus Junius Brutus. And yes, it is that Brutus. He would prove, however, to be their only child, which is slightly curious. Servilia undoubtedly would have been expected to produce more children, and as we'll see, she did go on to have further children, so it certainly wasn't due to any infertility on her part. Brutus, the elder, hadn't achieved much politically thus far, largely thanks to backing the wrong horse during the civil wars. He managed to avoid the murderous prescriptions that saw off many of Sulla's enemies, but it was clear he would never achieve high office while the new regime held. But this is the late Roman Republic. You're never all that far from a rebellion. In 77 BCE, the two consuls for the year fell out and Brutus took the side of Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. This, though, was a poor choice, as Lepidus was defeated in battle by his consular colleague. Brutus either surrendered or was betrayed by his troops, and was then assassinated by an associate of a rising star of the Roman Republic, one Gnaeus Pompeius, better known to history as Pompey. Yet another man close to Sevilla had died a violent death. 
once more, she was on her own. Sevilla was 23 years old when she was widowed, with a seven-year-old child. This created an intensely strong bond between the two, one even more powerful than might be expected between a mother and a son. She remained in her late husband's house and would have been in official mourning for the best part of a year. The expectation was that she would remarry and do so fairly soon. So when, less than two years later, she tied the knot for a second time, it wasn't considered that unusual. I've said many times in this show that the ideal position for a woman throughout history was being a wealthy young widow. Women in this position would have independent wealth and position and the respectability of having been married without the tie of the man actually being around. That said, for Sevilla, a new husband would give her greater connections and, hopefully, more children to help secure her in later life. Husband number two was Decimus Junius Silanus. He was around seven years her senior and didn't have much to recommend him, to be honest. His family line wasn't much to shout about. Indeed, Sevilla's modern biographer, Susan Trigiani, describes him as a, quote, second-rate man. What he did have, though, was money, and that was attractive enough. Combine his wealth with her lineage and you have the beginnings of, potentially, Rome's next hot power couple. He was at the start of his political career, and Sevilla's connections helped him rise, albeit slowly, up the ladder. They had four children together, three daughters, all called Junior, which is possibly a peak lack of imagination, and a son called Marcus. There have been arguments amongst historians about the parentage of one of the Juniors, Decimus may have had another son from another relationship, but the consensus appears to be that Sevilla now had five children by the mid-70s BCE. Her family were all achieving great things. Her half-brother, Cato the Younger, was rapidly making a name for himself as an orator and in the army, while her sister Portia had married another rising star, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. Measured against those achievements, her husband seemed a bit... Mid-card. Sevilla was more of a main-event kind of woman. So now that her position was secure and her children born, her eyes began to wander. Her family were primarily members of the Optimates Party, a conservative faction dedicated to maintaining the status quo. Yes, that is a gross oversimplification, but it'll do for our purposes. They were opposed in the Senate by the Populares, a populist grouping of reformers who were willing to appeal to the unwashed masses to get their programmes through. And rising through their ranks was a man with whom you may be familiar, one Gaius Julius Caesar. He had a similar background to that of Servilia. He claimed an illustrious descent, in his case from Aeneas of Troy and thus from the goddess Venus, but was a member of a family that had seen better days. That was until his aunt Julia married Gaius Marius. Caesar's star rose and fell with the fortunes of Marius, but it was on the battlefield that he achieved his greatest successes. 
By the time Sevilla became involved with him, he had made a name for himself in Spain and won his consulship in a spectacularly corrupt election in 60 BCE. Now, I've talked quite a lot already about the importance of moral purity, at least for women. While Roman gods were free to play fast and loose with their marriage vows, mortal women were supposed to be virgins before their first marriage, and then faithful afterwards. This all said, adultery, and let's say a liberal attitude towards sexual congress, was not uncommon at this time. Extramarital affairs are rarely given as reasons for the ending of marriages, and were also not as well used as attack lines in character assassinations given in speeches in the Senate. It was something that was tolerated so long as it was kept discreet. It could even be seen as advantageous for all concerned. A cuckolded man could see his fortunes rise if a man of power coveted his wife. One of the major issues for women taking on multiple lovers was, of course, the possibility that any children she may have could have the taint of illegitimacy. It's one of the reasons why it was considered so crucial for wives to stay loyal to their husbands. However, this doesn't appear to have been as great a concern in this period. It was not considered unusual for men to adopt stepchildren as their own, and divorce was far more accessible and less taboo an option than in other periods. Under the law, unless there was clear evidence to the contrary, the child of a married woman was considered to have been fathered by her husband, whatever the rumour. Male Roman aristocrats were pretty much expected to have many sexual partners, but few cast their net quite so broadly as Julius Caesar. In his Twelve Lives, Suetonius has this to say about Caesar. Quote, that he was unbridled and extravagant in his intrigues is the general opinion, and that he seduced many illustrious women. Among them Postuma, wife of Servius Sulpicius, Lollia, wife of Aulus Galbinius, Tertulla, wife of Marcus Crassus, and even Pompey's wife, Mercia. At all events, there is no doubt that Pompey was taken to task by the elder and younger Curio, as well as by many others, because through a desire for power he had otherwise married the daughter of a man on whose account he divorced a wife who had borne him three children. But beyond all others, Caesar loved Servilia, the mother of Marcus Brutus, for whom in his first consulship he bought a pearl costing six million sesterces. During the Civil War, too, besides other presents, he knocked down some fine estates to her in a public auction at a nominal price. And when some expressed their surprise at that low figure, Cicero wittily remarked, It's a better bargain than you think, for it is a third off. And in fact, it was thought that Servilia was prostituting her own daughter, Tercia, to Caesar. That he did not refrain from intrigues in the provinces is shown in particular by this couplet, which was also shouted by the soldiers in his Gallic triumph. Men of Rome, keep her close to your consorts, he is a bold adulterer. But gold in Gaul you spent in dalliance which you borrowed here in Rome. But to remove all doubt that he has an evil reputation, both for shameless vice and for adultery, I have only to add that the elder Curio in one of his speeches calls him every woman's man and every man's woman. So Caesar clearly got around. He was handsome, charming, intelligent, everything a Roman woman might find alluring in a man. It's not surprising that Servilia fell for him hard. 
Plutarch describes her as being, quote, passionately and guiltily in love with Caesar. And it seems that she was more than just another notch on his bedpost. We don't have an exact date for the start of their affair, but it seems likely that it began while Servilia was still married to her second husband. This is because Caesar's influence was vital to him being elected consul in 63 BCE, a post that he would never have won without such a high-profile backer. In a speech to the Senate, Caesar described Silanus as, quote, a gallant and brave man who was led by patriotism to say what he did say, and that moment he showed neither favour nor enmity, so well do I know the man's character and moderation. As I've said before, this was typical of Caesar, and why he could carry on with so many affairs with married women. It's a lot easier to go behind the husband's back when he turns it with a wink and a nod. Her family also benefited from her affair with Caesar. One of her nephews was betrothed to Caesar's daughter, Julia, though the marriage would not end up happening, as a more high-profile match with Pompey was found for her. Caesar would make it up to Servilia with a gift, a pearl worth six million sesterces, a vast sum of money. He also managed to protect her son, Brutus. In 59 BCE, a plot to murder Pompey was uncovered, and Brutus was implicated as one of the plotters. Given the enmity between Servilia's father and Pompey, it's not hard to imagine Brutus's reasons for becoming involved. However, Caesar used his influence to get the accuser, one Lucius Vettius, to omit Brutus's name from the list of conspirators. And Cicero was in no doubt as to who had persuaded him to do it. Quote, Vettius took Brutus out of his speech, after naming him in the Senate very vehemently. So it was obvious that a knight and a knight's appeal for clemency had intervened. The inference here is clear. Servilia had leaned on Caesar, and he in turn had leaned on Vettius, and thus Brutus had been saved. At some point in the late 60s or early 50s BCE, Servilia's husband died. You can tell he was a bit of a nobody, as no one bothered to reference it in any of the sources. But while she had remarried quickly after the death of her first husband, she would not do so after the death of Silanus. Caesar was also a single man, having recently divorced his wife for political reasons. But there was never a question that he might marry his mistress. He didn't yet have a son to carry on his name, and Servilia, who was now over 40 years old, was extremely unlikely to ever bear him one. It's a tale as old as time. So, instead, he married the 17-year-old daughter of one of his allies, though he needn't have bothered, as they would not go on to have any children either. Servilia would never remarry, and why would she need to? She had more than enough money to sustain herself, she had children to continue her line, and a powerful backer in Caesar. A new husband could offer her little reward, and there was always the possibility that his bungling could lead her into future difficulties. The record of her first two husbands hardly recommended a third. She could instead devote all of her time to supporting her children and their interests. She had a free reign over her household, able to invite whom she wanted, when she wanted, and in the case of Caesar, where she wanted. For an intelligent and curious woman such as Servilia, 
It's likely her house would have become a vibrant salon, where senators, intellectuals and thinkers were gathered to shoot the breeze and enjoy good food and wine. Over the next few years, Servilia is rarely mentioned in the sources. Her lover, Caesar, was engaged in his legendary conquest of Gaul, and while it's possible she may have travelled to see him on occasion, she would have spent most of her time back in Rome. She would have been a proud mother when her brother Cato took Brutus with him to secure the annexation of Cyprus, launching his political career. She secured good marriages for all of her daughters, all of whom married prominent men who would become valuable allies for her and Brutus. Of them, the most notable were Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, a future triumvir with Octavian and Antony, and Gaius Cassius, to whom fans of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar will require no introduction. Opponents of Servilia accused her of cynically pawning off her daughters to her own advantage, but gaining advantageous marriages for one's daughters was one of the principal maternal jobs. All of these men were of appropriate rank and station, and all three unions proved successful. As for Brutus, as I've already said, he was incredibly close with his mother. She had been only 15 years old when he was born, and his sisters were almost a decade younger than him. So for much of his young life, he was an only child and the apple of his young mother's eye. After the death of his father, he was adopted by Servilia's brother, Quintus Servilius Capio, and took his name, but he would most prize his claimed descent from Brutus, the hero of the foundation of the Republic. He began his public career, as I've said, helping his uncle Cato in Cyprus, but to fully kick off his time in the limelight, he would need a wife. He looked to his mother to find a suitable bride, and she selected Claudia, the daughter of Appius Claudius Polka, who served as consul in 54 BCE. This was a highly prestigious match. The Claudii was one of Rome's oldest and most illustrious families, and Appius was about as well-connected as you could hope to find in a father-in-law. Like Servilia, he was well-practiced in using his family to make connections and alliances, and was not above using bribery and violence to achieve his political ambitions. For Brutus to rise up the Cursus Honorum, he needed powerful backers. Servilia, through her relationship with Caesar, her own family connections, and now with this marriage, had given him the perfect support team. That said, Brutus's relationship with Caesar wasn't always as close as his mother would have liked. At Servilia's suggestion, Caesar had invited Brutus to come serve under him in Gaul. This would have been a perfect opportunity to learn soldiering from the best and win glory on the battlefield, but Brutus declined the offer referring instead to engage in his preferred pastime of making money. He was an unscrupulous moneylender, abusing his power in the Senate to make a killing lending money to everyone from senators to foreign kings. While history has often portrayed Brutus as an honest and virtuous man, he could be as venal and corrupt as any. I doubt, though, that Servilia would have reproached him for it. Corruption was very much the style of the time and she wasn't above abusing her power either to enrich herself. And a good thing too, because things were heating up in Rome. Caesar's victories in Gaul and refusal to give up his command was creating a political storm. While he was mopping up the last of Gallic resistance, his enemies in the Senate, led by Pompey and Servilia's brother Cato, were preparing quite the rap sheet. 
they demanded that he give up his post and return to Rome to face the music. Caesar would return, but he would cross the Rubicon with an army. Servilia's lover and brother would be pitched on opposite sides of a vicious civil war. But the question is this, where would she and her son plant their flag? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.